West Springfield High School's Applied History presents FCPS Through the Decades. Chapter 5, Modern History. Hello and welcome to the fifth and final episode of this season of FCPS Through the Decades. My name is Eric Tanhill, and I am reaching the end of my status as a temporary unpaid intern. So, for the final time, I will be your host. I hope you have enjoyed this educational and hopefully entertaining podcast. Our goal has been to examine the history of Fairfax County Public Schools by looking at specific decades in its history, and today we will be examining modern history. In this chapter of FCPS History, we'll discuss the lingering effects of racism on the education system in the present day, learning during a pandemic, and life as a transgender student with two very special guests. Last episode, we talked about the desegregation of Fairfax County Public Schools after the Brown v. Board of Education decision. Since this podcast is exclusively concerned with the education system, we didn't mention it, but obviously the Civil Rights Act was passed in 1964 and banned any form of segregation based on race, religion, sex, or national origin. This meant things like housing discrimination or refusal of service against African Americans or any other racial minority were now illegal. But in many ways, the damage was already done. As we previously mentioned in earlier episodes, Fairfax started growing from rural to suburban during the 1950s and 60s. However, the explosion of suburban development and population growth was largely limited to the county's white population. African-American communities were growing too, but they were landlocked because housing segregation kept African-American families from moving into new suburban neighborhoods. Some African-American landowners at Gum Springs, Merrifield, and Springbank subdivided their farms to create new neighborhoods for these growing families. These new neighborhoods were built in existing African-American enclaves, so the population in these communities grew denser, which had an impact on school construction and school desegregation. The development of new African-American neighborhoods was typically not allowed by the Fairfax County Board of Supervisors due to opposition from whites who did not want new black communities next to their own. Land and the places families lived tend to be passed down through generations, meaning that even to this day, there are predominantly black neighborhoods and white neighborhoods, even though the divide isn't legally mandated. Wealth and the ability to increase that wealth are also passed down through generations, meaning the discrimination of the 60s that kept non-white people out of lucrative careers still has impacts decades after anti-discrimination laws have been passed. Why am I bringing this up? Because a lot of schools, including Fairfax County Public Schools, are at least partially funded by local property taxes, meaning black children born into economically disadvantaged areas are more likely to attend underfunded schools and their white counterparts are more likely to have better funded education. Fairfax County actually has a perfect case study of how race and socioeconomic status can bar children from higher quality education in the modern day. Thomas Jefferson High School is one of Fairfax County's public schools and is currently ranked the number one high school in America. It's a magnet school and buses in some of the most gifted minds from all over Fairfax County. Before I tell you the demographics of the school, I'll tell you the demographics of Fairfax County for reference so you can understand how weird TJ's numbers are. According to the 2019 census, 64.7% of Fairfax County's population is white, 20.1% of the population is Asian, 16.5 is Hispanic, and 10.6 is Black. Now, since TJ pulls from all over the county, its racial makeup should, in theory, be roughly the same. According to U.S. News, 70% of the student population is Asian, 21% white, 5% mixed, 2% Hispanic, and 2% Black. 
about 2% of a school's population is economically disadvantaged. TJ's admission process doesn't look at race or income or even where a student comes from. Until 2021, it was purely based on how students scored in entrance exams. However, more affluent people can afford tutors, extra study material, and other means of improving their child's score. And economically disadvantaged students may not have regular access to food, internet, or a quiet place to study, or time in order to go through the rigorous process of applying to TJ, all of which hinders their academic performance. Thomas Jefferson High School is the perfect example of how, even if a law or policy isn't directly racist, it can still promote racial disparities. In my opinion, this is why the study of history is important. By looking back into the past, we can contextualize the present in order to better understand and hopefully improve the future. There are obviously other forms of systemic racism, but I'm just focusing on the school aspect of it. The issue of TJ's racial makeup and how there's a disproportionately low amount of Black and Hispanic students was brought up during the summer of 2020 as the nation was reckoning with systemic racism. And TJ has said it's looking to change its admission process in order to level the playing field. But there are no easy solutions, and it's still an ongoing issue. Hence why it's modern history. One thing of note Fairfax did in relation to its black students is it finally changed the name of a high school from Robert E. Lee to John R. Lewis. Is it a little performative? I would say yes. Is it a change that should have been made years ago? Also yes. Was it a good thing renaming the school? Absolutely. They changed the name from that of a man who betrayed his nation in order to maintain the institution of slavery to a civil rights icon who at the time had recently died. Speaking of 2020, there's a lot to talk about in terms of how historians will view it in the future. Luckily for me, only a small fraction of it has to do with schools, so I can skip a whole bunch of stuff. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic has had worldwide repercussions that we have not yet healed from and may never heal from. We all, in some way, have been affected. And schooling is no exception. I remember right before schools closed, I had to write an essay defending why online learning is better than in-person learning, and I brought up COVID-19 and how virtual schooling would help prevent the spread of disease through schools. I didn't realize at the time how relevant that argument was. Either way, in March 2020, Fairfax County Public Schools closed its doors, and for a couple weeks, we just waited at home. Eventually, the county restarted classes virtually. A lot of students weren't handing work in, so eventually it was decided that grades couldn't be lowered from where they were before the pandemic. It was difficult for teachers because they had to learn how to use a new medium to teach. And then, the next school year, the county transitioned to a different online platform, so teachers had to relearn online teaching all over again. The school week was restructured, so every Monday students had time to work on homework or meet with teachers. In case you couldn't have guessed, I'm a pretty talkative person. So using a microphone didn't really phase me, but I could tell how much other students hated it. There's a certain vindictive part of me that likes the irony that for most of my life, teachers have insisted that students be quiet and listen. But when we went online and muted ourselves, teachers had to beg into a blank void for someone to respond. Either way, after vaccines became available and teachers were vaccinated, FCPS moved to a hybrid model of learning where students could attend virtual or in-person classes. In-person classes required social distancing and masks. I personally chose to continue virtual learning and stayed at home because I liked to go to class in my pajamas. Now, 
The upcoming 2021 to 2022 school year is planned to have a full return to in-person learning with mandatory masks. There are mixed feelings about this. A lot of people's academic performance got worse with virtual learning, and a lot of people's improved. Many are worried for kids who are too young to get vaccinated against the COVID virus. We don't yet know what the future may bring for students or how they'll readjust to the learning environment after two years of isolation. History is unfolding in front of us. I remember when I was growing up, gay marriage was the hot-button social issue. But after the Obergefell v. Hodges Supreme Court ruling guaranteed same-sex couples the right to marriage, many people shifted their attention towards trans people, specifically trans people in the military, in bathrooms and locker rooms, and in sports. In more recent years, trans youth have become more visible, and issues related to school bathrooms, locker rooms, and sports, etc. have become more controversial. Fairfax County is one of the most liberal parts of Virginia, so this hasn't been too much of an issue. We'll go into more specifics later. However, more Southern and conservative districts have been far less accepting. Most famously, at least in recent years, is Gloucester County with their trans student Gavin Grimm. Now, I could explain the details of Gavin's story myself, but luckily, I got to interview him a little over a month ago, so I'll let him explain. Gavin, can you introduce yourself? My name is Gavin Grimm. I am a client of the ACLU in an ongoing lawsuit filed in 2015 against my school board, which banned me from the boys' bathroom because I am trans. I hesitate to try myself as an activist exactly, but... I work in my everyday life towards trans visibility and liberation. Just so you as the audience know, in between the time this interview was done and this episode was posted, the Supreme Court decided not to hear Gloucester County's appeal, so the lawsuit is no longer ongoing. The ACLU broke the news of this dismissal on June 28, 2021, so it's pretty recent. Anyways, back to the interview. What was your school life like before the lawsuit? I have always been ostracized and bullied when i was younger well part of it's always been about my weight i've always been picked on for being fat and when i was younger especially i was picked on because i'm autistic and so i wasn't didn't socialize the same way other people did and i was picked on because i was very boyish i was bullied so badly i i ended up being homeschooled in third grade homeschooled again at one point in middle school School was a really horrible place to be for a very long time for me. But once I I hit about 15, I had some really close, good friends who I still have today. And I matured a lot, but also had a kind of a shift in my perspective. And as a result, didn't get messed with too much. This is up until the lawsuit, to clarify. Um, Didn't get messed with too much. And when I did, I didn't really care. And I enjoyed about a year that first, maybe my freshman year, I was hopeful and excited. I had cut all my hair off and that was exciting to me, even though I had not yet transitioned within the school. But I was hopeful and excited for the school year because things were just kind of better in in quite a few ways, despite some of the things that were still going on. So leading up until the lawsuit, maybe I would have had a great high school experience if it had been undisturbed. Okay. Can you tell me more about the events directly leading up to the lawsuit? Another dynamic in my childhood that informed my position and my readiness to to kind of, I guess, push an issue. I have a twin brother who's a cis man. I, of course, was always compared to him in terms of what I could not do. I was treated completely differently 
So my whole childhood, I was like, that's not, that's not fair. That's not fair. And it wasn't fair. I, I just was a broken record because it happened so often. By the time I was ready to approach my school and say, this is who I am. I'm going to be living publicly as a boy. I had really gotten to a point in my life where I realized that I did not need to temper any part of myself for the comfort of other people. I just knew what I deserved. I deserved to use the bathroom. And so I rolled up to the school with my mother. We're like, hey, I'm a boy. What are you going to do about it? To clarify, what rights are you going to give him? Because he needs all of them, basically. So what are you going to do? And the principal's like, well, I want to do the right thing. And so he rang up the superintendent and he was like, yes, sure, whatever. And so I then I just did my thing. There weren't any issues. I did not have any confrontations in the bathroom. I had people make comments. Who cares? I had heard everything and then some at that point. Regardless, it went fine. But some parents complained to the school board. And then there was a Facebook post that went around that said, get that girl out of the boys' room. So given that I had the background of like always advocating for myself and always being like the only person who would do that, I was like, that's not fair. And so we went to the school board meeting and I spoke on my behalf and like pretty much no one else did. And it was really hostile and horrible. And I was a 15-year-old kid. The train kind of took off from there. There was another school board meeting a month later, which I also spoke at. And when they voted to ban me from the boys' room, it wasn't a question of, should I take action? I didn't actually feel as though I made a conscious decision in that moment. It was more like, all right, these people are jerks. This is wrong. This should be illegal. This is illegal. What can I do to fight back against this? Because there's no way in hell I'm going to spend the rest of my high school career just accepting this as how things are. And I didn't really care what taking action looked like. I just wanted to take the next step. What was it like during the actual lawsuit for you personally? There was a period of time where um, I don't know that I would say household name, but I would say just shy of it probably, especially when Laverne Cox shouted me out at the Grammy. She said, Google Gavin Grimm. And so like my whole life took off in this trajectory that was completely alien to anybody in my life. No, None of my peers could possibly relate to this experience where I'm on these talk shows and I'm dealing with this new territory of the questions cis people ask and trying to be diplomatic and learning what the game is in that kind of industry and how to answer things tactfully and not let them get you. And there's a lot to it that I had to kind of learn on the fly. And I was just earnest and naive. And it was, it was uh, I think, a steep learning curve in the beginning. And as wonderful as it was, it was also very isolating as a result. I was also put in this world where a lot of my peers were adults. I was regularly having dialogue with adults. I was regularly the like expert in the room in terms of being the only trans representative in conversations that otherwise had adults on the panel. And I was in some ways respected as not an adult necessarily, but respected as an equal voice in the room. And that was wonderful and validating. But then also in other ways, I had people talk to me like I was a child and ask me really stupid questions and like really underestimate me. And so it was grappling with the heightened scrutiny on anything you said or did. It really humbled me a lot. And it made me extremely conscious of how my words and actions affected other people and reflected on the community sometimes as a whole. And it made me really conscious of only speaking from my own perspective. 
And this all started when you were a sophomore in high school? Yep, 2015 was six years of my life. Thank you for sharing your experience. Now, could you tell me about the case itself and how it went? The course of the cases went like this. We went to the district court. We had this grumpy old justice. He had his opinion for him long before we got there. He was a unsurprising, extremely conservative individual. So we lost there. We appealed to the appellate court, the Fourth Circuit. In response to that, the school board filed a preliminary injunction, which basically was a request to block our appeal. And the appellate court at that time decided that my case could go ahead, thus kind of describing a bit of a victory in a sense. It basically said, legally speaking, this case has merit. If, if we didn't have any legal merit, they would never have done that. So then we go to the appellate court and we win there. And then the school board appeals to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court took my case. And then when the Trump administration rolled in, one of the first things they did was vacate the Obama era guidelines regarding Title IX, which interprets Title IX as protecting trans students in schools and their rights to like use the bathroom and stuff. And so because that was gone and was no longer the law of the land, my case was then kicked back to the Fourth Circuit because now the question on the table is, do we have a legal argument without that? We, again, won. Basically, we won in that the Fourth Circuit decided my case has merit. The school board then appealed back to the Supreme Court. So we are currently waiting to hear if the Supreme Court is going to take up my case. Hi, this is President Eric coming back in to let you know that the Supreme Court decided not to hear Gavin's case, which implies that they think the Fourth Circuit's ruling in favor of Gavin has legal merit, so they don't need to go over it again. This is good news. Anyway, back to the interview. So, Gavin, the podcast that I'm doing this interview for is called FCPS Through the Decades, and it's mostly focused on Fairfax County Public Schools. But this episode is more about the broader view of American public schools and modern controversies and history in the making. You are an integral part of that recent history. So what I'm trying to ask is, in terms of history, how do you think people will look back on you and your court case? And how would you want it to be taught in schools in the future? When people look back, I don't necessarily care to what extent my name is tied to that recognition. But I hope people at least look at my case as an example of ideally how far we have come when we are at a point that we're looking back and acknowledge, I guess, the sort of sins of our past and acknowledge the structures which created the conditions that allowed that type of discrimination to happen so that we may create just a more equitable process for everybody. And, and that goes right into how I hope it's taught in schools. I hope it's taught because there's other you know, trans young people who have been dealing with school lawsuits in, in other counties, other states, other jurisdictions, sports discrimination, these kind of things. I, I would hope that this would be looked at in a wider framework of the knowledge that during this period of time, there were so many trans people who had to sacrifice so much to take the mantle of being that sort of a sacrifice of sorts to have this hope of a chance of changing the future for other people. Because a lot of the times, we never get to see the fruit of that labor. So I would like it to be viewed as a criticism of the wider conditions. Thank you, Gavin, for agreeing to do this interview with me. I had a lot of fun talking with you.
Our interview was a lot longer than what we kept in the episode, and we touched on a wide range of stuff, but these edited down sound bites are the best I can do to condense the information that was given because we don't have all day. More recently, there's been a focus shifted onto trans kids in sports. Now, Gavin didn't do sports, so I didn't bother asking. Luckily, I know someone who'd be perfect to interview. He's trans, did a high school sport for all four years, comes from Fairfax County, and is the best temporary unpaid intern. Um. Uh, present company excluded. Please welcome Tara Wipke, my fellow equally awesome temporary unpaid intern who works as a script and sound editor and did the wonderful design you see on our little thumbnail. Today, she'll be interviewing me about my experiences as a trans athlete. Eric, it's lovely to interview you today. It's lovely meeting you for the hundredth time. Yes, like how many times has it been since eighth grade? A lot. I don't know. (laughs) You were on the crew team with me for all four years, which, by the way, has always been a delight. How was it to start on the girls' crew team during the preseason, kind of like with erging and getting ready for the season, to then transition to the boys' crew team during the season? Okay. So for our listeners who don't row, by the way, erging is the verb for when you're working out on the rowing machines you see in the gym that you don't use. (laughs) Either way, it was kind of awkward because the thing is, like, a lot of people ask something along the lines of, how did you know you were trans? And I'm like, the trans fairy came and told me. (laughs) But no, it's, it's a difficult process figuring out who you are. And so, like, at the very beginning of freshman year, I was going through a lot of, like, am I non-binary? Am I gender fluid? What am I? I had already started liking the sport of crew before I realized I was a guy. And when I did, I was like, oh, crap. That explains a lot, but also I kind of want to row with the guys. And it's not just because our freshman year coach was kind of crazy on the women's side. It was kind of awkward at first, but the men's coaches were really awesome about it. And the women's coaches were also really cool about it, too. I walked up to Coach Mark, the head coach of the crew team and the head women's coach as well. And I was like, "Uh, how would I transition to the men's team? And I said, like, for a friend, theoretically, and he, he gave me this look. He's like... All right, I'll email your mom the paperwork. (laughs) And it was actually pretty easy. I had to petition VASRA, the Virginia Association of Scholastic Rowers, I think is what it it stands for. Whatever. The, The people who do the rowing stuff. And I just wrote a letter and was like, hi, I'm trans. Please let me row with boys. And they said, okay. And that was about it. Well, I'm glad it was a relatively smooth process. Did you feel accepted by your team? Some people, yes. Some people, no. I had already been friends with a couple people because some of the girls I was friends with on the women's team were dating some of the guys. So I'd already gotten to know them by osmosis. So I already knew a couple people, but there were still other people where it was kind of awkward and I could tell they didn't really know what to make of me. Were there other sports that you tried out for or did and how did your experiences differ from crew? I have done a lot of things. I did like little league soccer, but I honestly don't remember any of it. I got in trouble because I just would sit distracted on the ground and play with grass. I did ballet for like seven years. And honestly, I never really got along with girls and I didn't understand why. I just never really understood the girls I was dancing with until I did. I was like, yeah, that that explains so much. (laughs) I don't know. Crew's like the first sport I really, truly like fell in love with. So what is one of your good or best memories from being in crew or in a sport in school in general? I think without a doubt, my best memory is from freshman year. I was so nervous. It was my first ever race. And the position I hold on the crew team for our listeners is called coxswain. I steer the boat and I give encouragement while they race. And I was so nervous I would mess something up. Like my mom legitimately thought I was going to like throw up. I looked 
pale as a ghost. It was awful. But we got first place and like I was just so relieved and so happy. And I was like, yes, I belong here. This is my moment. Like that's when I knew like this is the sport for me. And it's still just an amazing memory and I still love it. Was there a person who gave you advice and or treated you with respect that helped you? Uh, His name was Ian. He was really awesome. He was a year older than me and he broke his leg. So he was a coxswain for the year before I was there. And he gave me a lot of really good coxing advice. And one day I was super upset and I was crying in the corner and he like found me and he's like, here, I'll give you a hug. He's like, don't worry. Our crew team kind of sucks. So if you lose, don't worry. We're used to it. And I know it doesn't sound super encouraging, but knowing that there was someone who was A, willing to deal with me when I was not at my best, and B, who, you know, would accept me even if I was flawed at my job, was really comforting and really, really important. Do you feel that Fairfax County could have done more to help make the transition easier for you, whether it was in sports or in the classroom? Keep in mind, like, it took until this summer, 2021, that they finally passed rules, like, saying it's actually hateful for teachers to misgender students and to not use their preferred names. And one thing that's a big issue that I'm still kind of annoyed about is to get your name changed in the system, you need to have it legally changed, which does actually take a lot of time. So one thing I think would be really useful is if they could update their systems so they'd have like a nickname or preferred name option where a student can tell a teacher, hey, I prefer to be called blank and they don't need to have it legally changed in the entire system just to get that respect. And that way they don't have to deal with substitute teachers who might out them or otherwise embarrass them by using an old name that they don't go by. I absolutely agree that I'm very sorry that you were misgendered by anyone. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of the old art teacher, but I don't think you were either. She she was a character. <laughs> Anywho, one other thing that was really annoying is locker rooms for changing. So luckily, I'm really good at communicating and dealing with things. So what I did is I talked to the theater teacher and I was like, hey, before my PE class, I really don't I don't want to make other people uncomfortable by, you know, trying to change in the boys room, because at that point I had barely started testosterone and I hadn't gotten top surgery. So I very clearly when I was changing did not look like a guy. So I ended up talking to the theater teacher and she let me use the men's dressing room which was really, really helpful, and it made me feel a lot better. But also, it was very othering to know that I had to, like, walk down every day and ask the theater teacher to, like, let me in. What was it like to do a very grown-up thing as only a teenager? Were you you ever afraid? All the time. Gavin mentioned it in his interview, and I'll say it again. Like, you feel like this emissary. You have to speak for everyone in your community and you have to do it in a nuanced, understanding, compassionate way. Even if people are asking really uncomfortable questions or making you feel wrong or weird. And you have to recognize that every single mistake you make doesn't reflect on you, it reflects on everyone like you. And I knew that there would be trans kids who would come after me and who'd want to play sports. And I didn't want them to have to walk into a school environment where The first thing anybody would think about is that one time that one trans kid did something stupid. I don't want them to have to deal with that pressure and having to deal with consequences for my actions. So I was always super aware of just how important it was that I kept myself together and presented myself in a good way. I am so sorry that you had to have that constant pressure. If it means anything, I thought that you were always a great role model for anyone Hmm. and... 
Do you have any advice for any trans teens that are hoping to join a school sport or come out at school? First and foremost, it's always important to have close friends who will always respect and love you. Thank you, Tara. You're the best. If someone doesn't respect you or your identity, dump them, dump them on their head, throw them, eat them. And one thing that's important to know is there are some sports that are gendered, like crew, where there's a men's team and a women's team. But there are a lot of sports that are 100% not gendered. Gymnastics, cheerleading, a whole bunch of others that you can 100% do and you don't necessarily need to, you know, fight for your spot there. Because it really is like in cheerleading, the difference is literally just what uniform you have. And as long as you have a semi-decent cheer coach, you can compete as whatever gender makes you happiest. If you do want to work on a gendered sport like crew or basketball, where there's a men's team and a women's team, do your best to work with the coaches. And I can't promise you that you'll have accepting and awesome coaches like mine who would actively correct people on my pronouns and always made sure that I fit in and I was with the guys. But if you have that, treasure it and appreciate it. And if you don't, advocate for yourself and let people know it's not okay and you do deserve a spot on that team. And then lastly, was doing a sport a vital part of your school experience? Absolutely. The only reason I stuck with school as long as I did was because of crew. It's not because I like wanted to flunk out. I got straight A's. I had an over 4.0 GPA. I'm like, I'm smart. But the thing is, I kind of wanted like my last year of school to just sort of skip out on everything. And I had the option of like taking an accelerated course, like take care of my final senior year in like a semester. But if I did that, I couldn't do crew. And at the time, it was like the beginning of the pandemic and no one knew if we were going to have sports or not. So I like rolled the dice on it and I was like, you know what? I'm going to stick with high school for the rest of the year. I might not particularly enjoy high school, but I will regret it for the rest of my life if I don't get to have that final senior year crew season. Thank you, Eric, for joining me on your own podcast. We made this podcast together. It's it's an us podcast. I hope you enjoyed this last episode of season one of FCPS Through the Decades. This got much more personal as now I'm talking about at least some of my lived experience. We still have ongoing issues within and without the education system, and neither is a vacuum. Whether it's racism, transphobia, or a viral pandemic, eventually, the struggle of the adult world becomes part of schools as well. At the conclusion of the season, my greatest hope is that, as an audience, you come away with the understanding of how the past interacts with the present and the trajectory of the future. I hope that as you listened to the episodes, you grew to understand the evolution of FCPS and why it is the way it is in the modern day. People rarely realize it, but they are living through history, through moments that will be written down and discussed by academics for years to come. So thank you all for joining us on this exploration of FCPS history. This episode of FCPS Through the Decades was written and directed by Eric Tanhill, with script editing by Tara Whipke and Jeff Clark, and sound editing and visual art by Tara Whipke. For more information, go to fcps.edu and search using the keywords, Our History. 